0: Join me, Dr. Kathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooltop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life, and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Dr. Dasha Nichols leads the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Research Team in the Division of Psychiatry at Imperial College London. Her research aims to improve understanding and interventions for children and young people with eating disorders and obesity. In particular, her research focuses on risk factors and early intervention for disordered eating behaviour and seeks practical and scalable solutions from parent training to policy change that directly influence outcomes. Dr. Nichols is a practicing child and adolescent psychiatrist in central and northwest London. She is past chair of the Eating Disorders Faculty of the Royal College of Psychiatrists and led development of the Junior Marzipan Guidelines for the Management of Seriously Ill Patients with Anorexia Nervosa. Dr. Nichols is also past president of the Academy of Eating Disorders, the largest international eating disorders professional association, instigated development of the British Eating Disorders Society and was co-founder of the Child and Adolescent Psychiatric Surveillance System for Research into Rare Disorders and Events in Child Mental Health. And welcome, Dasha. How are you? I'm all right, thank you.
1: Thanks for asking.
0: Now, Dasha, I recently attended a conference that you gave at the Association of Child and Adolescent Mental Health, and it was a fascinating talk that you gave. And one of the phrases that I remember from that talk was that, really, we're in the middle of potentially a sort of a perfect storm where we're seeing a rise in eating disorders. And that's the reason for this podcast today.
1: I understand that, yes. And it is a particularly challenging time for people with eating disorders and for risk of developing eating disorders at the moment.
0: So let's start with definitions. I think typically people, when they think about eating disorders, they think about anorexia and bulimia, and that's it. Can you sort of help us understand that it's slightly more complex than that, isn't it?
1: It is, although I think historically that, that's understandable that those are the disorders that come to mind. Anorexia nervosa has been described for centuries now. Bulimia nervosa was much more recent, I, perhaps not in some people's definitions, but certainly it's within my living memory because that was first described in 1979 and really came to prominence. I think Princess Diana revealing that she'd had bulimia nervosa was a factor in what made increased public awareness. And for a long time, they were the main eating disorder diagnoses and everything else was classified as an eating disorder, not otherwise specified, including binge eating disorder. That changed somewhat in 2013 with the publication of what's called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, which is the American version of the diagnostic classifications, which pulled binge eating disorder out as a separate diagnosis because by that time, We'd accumulated enough information about it to say it had distinct characteristics. We were able to describe its epidemiology and people had started doing treatment trials specifically about that presentation. So now when people talk about eating disorders, they're mainly talking about those three, anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder. And everything else falls into a category called other specified feeding and eating disorders or OSFED. And amongst OSFED, however, are some of the presentations that are where there's the greatest increases happening at the moment. So one of the presentations that would be included in OSFED is atypical anorexia nervosa. And atypical anorexia nervosa is essentially defined as all of the characteristics of anorexia nervosa, but the person is not significantly underweight, as we might consider medically. And this is quite a common presentation. It's people essentially who have been overweight often and who have adopted extreme restrictive practices and other compensatory behaviours to the extent that they have become in themselves pathological or compulsive in nature. And this is one of the presentations that we're seeing a lot of at the moment in clinical services. The other diagnosis that was pulled out as separate in but it's still classified as an other specified feeding and eating disorder is purging disorder. So that has a lot of characteristics of bulimia nervosa in the the main feature, not surprisingly, is purging behavior. And purging can be, doesn't necessarily just mean self-induced vomiting. It can be any sort of behavior that's designed to eliminate calories, essentially. So it might be prolonged periods of fasting. It might be other sorts of behaviors that such as taking other types of medications that might get rid of calorie intake or energy intake. And the thing that distinguishes it from bulimia nervosa is that there are no binge eating episodes. And the reason, just to be clear why it was pulled out as a separate diagnosis, was because the cognitive behavioral model of bulimia nervosa is predicated on the fact that the binge eating behavior is the precipitant for the purging. In other words, that the purging behavior is to compensate for the binging. And obviously, that doesn't apply in the context of purging disorder. So you've got purging behavior, but you don't have binging behavior. And then the other diagnoses where things changed in 2013 were disorders that previously wouldn't have been classified as eating disorders. So they would have been classified as feeding disorders of infancy and early childhood or as somatization disorders or in other sections of the classification dictionary, if you like. And they've now been brought together into a single chapter on feeding and eating disorders. And the most important of those, I think, for parents to understand about is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, or ARFID, as it's known, is an umbrella term. I think in future years, it will in itself be broken down into subcategories. But for the moment, it's an umbrella term that encompasses a number of presentations, but that do not have the common characteristic that all the other eating disorders have of being about weight and shape concerns. So some examples would be a phobic avoidance of food for reasons other than fear of weight gain. So a fear of choking or a fear of being sick, that leading to clinically significant food avoidance to the point that there's significant psychological or physical impact. That's one subtype of ARFID. So those are the main eating disorder diagnoses as they're currently classified. But it is an evolving situation as we understand more about the individual Characteristics of each type of presentation. I should just say at this point there is also what's known as a transdiagnostic view of eating disorders. That is to say that the similarities between anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, atypical anorexia, purging disorder, etc., uh, are so so great that actually it doesn't make sense to separate them all into separate diagnoses. And there's a particular form of treatment, a mainly adult treatment, but it has been extended in some groups to adolescents, where the diagnosis itself is not the way that the treatment is organised. The treatment is essentially a modular treatment where the modules of the treatment apply depending on the characteristics of the presentation, but it's considered a trans-diagnostic therapeutic approach.
0: And Dasha, it's so apparent that the sort of complexity around diagnosis, it's understandable why this comes under the realm of psychiatry.
1: Yeah, I don't think the complexity is why it comes under the realm of psychiatry. It comes under the realm of psychiatry because eating disorders are not defined by weight or by physical health parameters. They're defined by thoughts and feelings. So somebody can appear completely normal to other people, but what's inside their head is how we make the diagnosis. And that's what distinguishes psychiatric disorders from physical disorders at the end of the day.
0: And one of the things that struck me listening to you at the ACAM conference was that the mean age of onset, whether it's general eating disorders or not, I'll I'll ask you to clarify, is 14. Is that correct?
1: There's a peak in eating disorders between the ages of about 15 and 19. And there's a slight difference depending on how that's been measured In clinical services, people presenting to clinical services for treatment, anorexia nervosa appears to present slightly younger, but that's partly because it comes to medical attention sooner, because people get into trouble from a medical perspective sooner. Whereas the more hidden eating disorders, bulimia nervosa and binge eating disorder, it often can take months, sometimes years for somebody to realize it's enough of a problem that they need to seek help. And it's not, as I've just said, always apparent to other people. And so there tends to be a delay between the onset of those disorders and the time that they seek medical help. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the age when they've started is very different. So we don't know that much about when the disorders actually start, because most of the ways that they're measured are about when they present
0: And I think that you've mentioned, you certainly did in that talk, about the prevalence of eating disorders. They're on the rise, and you described some of the reasons for that. So can we just dwell on that for a moment?
1: Absolutely, we can. So just to be clear, some eating disorders are not on the rise. There's a lot of evidence showing that the incidence and prevalence of anorexia nervosa is relatively stable. It's not a new disorder, as I said earlier. Uh, It's been around for centuries And there does seem to be a relative stability in anorexia nervosa. What may be happening is people being precipitated into it slightly younger. And that's important in terms of understanding why. The disorders where there does seem to be an increase are those disorders that are associated with purging behaviour and other what I would call extreme behaviours designed to control weight. And I speculated and have done in print as well as in that talk that you refer to about the relationship between that and the rises that we're seeing in weight problems in the population as a whole. So everybody will know that there's what's been described as an obesity epidemic happening across the world. It's not specific to England or the UK. And where you have increased rates of obesity, you have increased rates of disordered eating behaviour. And the mechanisms for the link between the two are one of the areas that I'm particularly interested in. But if you consider that the risk factors, the biggest, the best known risk factors for the development of eating disorders are body image dissatisfaction. So in other words, being very unhappy about your own weight and shape and dieting behavior. So extreme periods of food restriction, then it's not hard to see how there's a link between being at a higher weight And the likelihood of having some of the risk factors for disordered eating behaviour.
0: And you've mentioned body dissatisfaction. I mean, we've known for some time in the UK, UK children in particular, are unhappy with the way they look, aren't they?
1: Body image has been described as the silent emergency among young people. There's recently been a report from a series of government inquiries into body image. And the testimonies that young people give about how difficult today's society is from the perspective of body image are are quite telling, I think. Absolutely. I mean, body image is an issue across the world, but there are certainly some cultures where concerns about body image are greater than others. But we know that it's quite normal for children to feel self-conscious about their weight. And the difficult thing with eating disorders is to know where what's normal for the culture begins to err into pathology, into something that's potentially damaging for health.
0: Absolutely. And if I just share some things, you know, that I pick on when I'm working with parents or listening to parents, it's not uncommon to hear of eight, nine-year-olds sort of in their bedroom binge eating, getting all the chocolate Easter eggs, putting them under their pillow that kind of behavior or nine-year-olds saying they think they're fat. That is so common. And parents saying, you know, do I need to take them to a clinical psychologist? Do I need to go to the GP? It's very, very hard for parents to work out and distinguish what to be worried about and what to just let go as see as part of a normal childhood response.
1: I absolutely agree about that. I I think when these behaviors become normal, you have to think what's going on in the wider environment that's driving these behaviors rather than necessarily focusing on them as pathology within your child. But clearly, some of those behaviors do herald the onset of more persistent difficulties. and, And that's the bit that parents do need to start to have some awareness of.
0: And I think in terms of, you know, if we think about what needs to happen in family life around this topic of body image, let's kind of just sort of reel through a couple of things that are very beneficial. Number one, what are parents modelling? That's a key question, isn't it?
1: Absolutely. I think we know that what's known as fat-free talk is really important so not commenting on people's body weight and shape as a matter of course whether it's a casual comment about somebody's appearance on the television or whether it's comments within close family members it's really important that people don't feel judged by their weight and their shape regardless of what it is because we know that if children start to identify with or label themselves in a negative way in relation to their body shape that has lasting repercussions irrespective of how heavy they are
0: And also parents can be quite reticent To comment on their children's bodies They're very very careful to tiptoe around this And I just wondered what your view was on that. I remember growing up and my father was always saying, oh, you've got lovely hair and you've got lovely eyes and (laughs) giving me loads of positive feedback. And I just wondered, sometimes parents seem to be quite reluctant to mention their children's bodies or, you know, to sort of interact with them very positively.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting issue, isn't it, about whether you positively validate when a child's body shape is ideal in some way. I think the given wisdom in the eating disorders field is that it's best to avoid that, that it's best to talk about the functions of the body rather than the shape of the body. So as I was saying a minute ago, rather than saying, oh, you look look lovely and slim, or a very common one is to praise people when they've lost weight, that it, it's better to focus on the behaviours such as, oh, you look like you're really en- enjoying running or the things that the body can do. You're, you know, you're, you're such a strong young person or so comments like that to, to comment on what, what the body can do rather than what it looks like. So the concept of sort of body
0: gratitude, you know, grateful for its capability
1: and its strength and,
0: and really watching the language that we use at home around all of these things.
1: Absolutely. So not avoiding talking about bodies and their value. I think the campaign uh, This Girl Can is a very good example of how to talk positively about what bodies can do without commenting on their size and shape.
0: What about Resilience to comments from other people, which we know can be terribly cruel, certainly in a school setting. How do you think parents and family life can help sort of increase that resilience to those sorts of bullying behaviours in school?
1: Yeah, look, this is a real challenge in what I was referring to about the culture in which we live. We live in a culture where weight stigma is normal, sadly, and it's particularly high amongst some groups. And children are very stigmatizing to each other about their weight. And that can get internalized so that people start to stigmatize themselves about their weight. So they start to view themselves negatively. And that we do know is a risk factor for disordered eating behavior. It's interesting. It's one of the few areas of stigma where, where it's increasing rather than decreasing. You know, if you think about other areas such as discrimination about disability or race or whatever, those are all illegal, but somehow it's still legal to discriminate against somebody because of their body weight and that is something that both the eating disorders field and the obesity field are recognizing as a real problem in terms of driving problems with eating and eating disorders. So I think all parents can do is be aware of that. I'm a great believer in normalizing things, which means just to kind of say, well, yes, that happens, but, and it's normal for people to think like that, but it's important that you don't think like that. So in the same way that you would educate your child about, you know, diversity and discrimination in other areas, it's important to do the same when it comes to weight and shape.
0: And also to bring home the message that it's not appropriate to comment on anyone else's body, nor is it okay for people to criticize our bodies.
1: Absolutely. And so teasing about weight and shape is often described as one of the triggers for the onset of dieting behavior or change in eating behavior.
0: And going back to, because I'm very interested, because this is such a common question about sort of the seven, eight, nine-year-old girl, typically, when I hear about it, who's binge eating in the bedroom. From what you're saying, it's important to look at the context around that child, what's going on in their life, how they're feeling, doing, what's going on in their friendships, whether they're using social media. It's looking at the whole context, isn't it, before we reach any sort of conclusions.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the first thing I would really urge people to do is to try and think whether the behavior is emotionally driven. Is it a behavior that's happening because of sadness, unhappiness, unhappiness with self? If the behavior is in the bedroom, has it become secret because of shame or guilt in some way? So that's the first thing to disentangle. But don't assume it's just that. Sometimes people have, you know, there's variation across the population in terms of how, what's known as food responsiveness, how food, food focused they are and we know that for example there's an association with children who've got attention deficit and higher rates of food responsiveness and disinhibited appetite and that's not driven primarily by emotion that's to do with different reward systems in the brain if you like So it's really important not to make assumptions that eating behavior, overeating behavior, binge eating behavior is emotionally driven. It may be it's a trigger for exploring what's going on. Why are you being secretive about this? Because what you want to try and prevent, if you can, is that sort of secret eating. And I have to say, again, that's pretty normal for children of that sort of age to want to have things that are just for themselves and to keep things secret How you stop that becoming a behavior that's highly shameful and associated with guilt, which are the things that are likely to tip somebody into disordered eating behavior. And as I've said, to identify if it's a a change in behavior, if it's something new, has something triggered it? Has there been an emotional trigger? Because emotional overeating can turn into binge eating.
0: So it's about trying to bring things out of the, you know, secrecy and into the kind of the light of family
1: life. And not to not to assume you understand what's behind the behavior, but certainly to comment on it, to notice it and comment on it. And then I think there's a judgment that you need to make about whether you say, you know, I know it's happening, but I'm going to allow it to happen. It's OK. You know, I have a 15 year old son and he eats huge amounts of chocolate from time to time. But I also don't try and make him feel guilty about it because he's a young, active, healthy boy. And that's the other thing, is that we need to be balanced about our approach and not make people feel guilty about doing things that are pleasurable from time to time when you can see that it's not having any detrimental effect on their physical or mental health. So that's what I mean. It's really important to keep a balanced perspective and not get overly anxious about behaviors that are particularly, could be perceived as normal. Versus recognising when your child is distressed and that's being manifest through eating behaviour, which is one of the commonest ways. I mean, appetite and eating behaviour is is one of the across mental disorders. You know, if you think about depression, anxiety, almost any mental disorder can manifest in a change in appetite and eating behaviour. So eating behaviour is a very prominent marker of emotional states So that's the thing that you have to keep in mind is, is this a reflection of what's going on emotionally for my child or is this just normal variation and I need to be careful not to make them feel bad or distressed about what's happening, but just keep an eye on it and check that it's not turning into something that could become problematic for them.
0: And when teenagers say want to become a vegan or a vegetarian. Often I'll see parents sort of celebrating the fact that their children are passionate about the world and, you know, climate change. But there seems to be a hint within the literature on eating disorders that sometimes that could be a little bit of an alarm bell. Is that accurate?
1: Look, This is a quite a complex area. I, I would say that the fact that there's been a huge cultural shift about the normality of veganism and vegetarianism is probably a positive thing in terms of the relationship between eating disorders and vegetarianism or more veganism, because previously when these were relatively rare, it represented an extreme of the population and it was hard for young people to get the eating right so they would often end up in nutritional imbalance in the process of trying to distinguish their eating behavior from that of the rest of their family which can sometimes be part of a sort of adolescent growing up phase of like i want to be different and i want to identify in a different sort of way from the rest of my family or sometimes it may be because this is the family norm in which case it's much less likely to become pathological But just in the kind of I'm doing something independently and for myself, it's very easy for children to get energy balance wrong. And when it was hard to get hold of vegetarian foods and vegan foods, it would mean that children would often not be able to eat socially, for example, with other children or in restaurants. And that has changed. So the normalising of becoming vegan and vegetarian is actually quite helpful in some ways in terms of ensuring that children get a balanced nutritional intake for their age and, and stage of development. That said, there is quite a strong association between a vegetarianism veganism and eating disorders and there's all sorts of potential mechanisms by which there may be a, a association including preoccupation with ethical values and and clean eating wanting to know the provenance of food and so on. And that's why it becomes more difficult to disentangle that. At the end of the day, the distinguishing feature is whether the driving force behind the change in eating behavior is concerned about weight and shape. If it's driven by, I believe that if I'm vegetarian, it'll be easier to lose weight or to manage my weight, then that's got an eating disorder emphasis behind it. And that may not always be overt. So somebody might not tell you that's what's really in the back of their mind. So that's the thing to to watch is whether somebody is getting their nutritional balance right when they have changed their eating behavior. And just to be sure in your own mind, at least, that it's not being driven by beliefs about weight and shape and how vegetarian or vegan diets might influence that because the two can get very entangled with one another.
0: So it's really about as a parent being observant and almost being, you know, your own researcher in family life and just keeping an eye on things. And if anything sort of stands out or seems remarkable or doesn't make sense to you or you're not clear on what the motivation is behind a particular change in eating, that's when you should always
1: seek help and advice. Yes, and I I think I'm saying try to be thoughtful about what's going on for my child, try to be what we call psychologically minded or reflective about the the place your child might be in and think, is this part of normal adolescent development? And keep an eye on whether they're getting it right, because they are experimenting. They may not know what the rules are, it may not have specific intent behind it, but they may not know how to do things safely. It's like any risk-taking behaviour in adolescence. So yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Keeping an eye on things and recognising when it's getting out of control, but giving your child enough licence to experiment with things. And obviously there are some sort of young people who are are more at risk than others in terms of getting stuck in some sorts of behaviours. So if you know that your child is particularly compulsive in nature or very rule-driven and likely to get very distressed if the rules that they've internalised about eating get changed. Those are the sorts of things that might put a child at increased risk.
0: And what about disordered eating behaviours in boys? How do they differ if they do from behaviours in girls?
1: Well, I think by definition they don't differ that much because the behaviours are the behaviours and they can occur, you know, across Genders across ethnicities, there's no portion of the population that isn't susceptible to the behaviours that we classify as disordered. And I think it's a mistake to think that it's different in boys somehow. Clearly, the psychological drivers might look a bit different than the cultural expectations for boys sometimes are a bit different. But that's, uh, I think, something to explore at an individual level rather than at a diagnostic level. And I think there's a common thesis is that people with eating disorders want some sort of
0: greater control over their lives. To what extent is that accurate?
1: I don't know anybody who doesn't want a bit of control over their life and how when things are bad in some way, it's very distressing to feel out of control. Not everybody exercises that through eating. So there are other ways that people take a bit more control when things are feeling overwhelming. So I think that's a common theme for lots of types of mental disorders, eating being one of them. I think the thing about eating behaviour is that once it does become controlled, once eating becomes a cognitive process rather than a what I might call a somatic or physiological process. In other words, the normal eating is appetite-driven. Once your head starts telling you what to eat instead of your body, that's when it can start getting into trouble. So the thing about eating behavior is that what starts off as a relatively normal wish to control something that's overwhelming, very quickly the change in eating behavior can in itself become controlling. And so we know, for example, from experiments that were done in the 1950s is that if people get into a state of starvation, the starvation state in itself can start perpetuating some of the behaviors that you see in eating disorders, what we call starvation syndrome. So in other words, it takes on a life of its own, irrespective of whatever the emotional or psychological triggers that were around that precipitated it in those experiments there was no emotional or psychological trigger and yet a lot of the behaviors looked very similar to the behaviors that you see in anorexia nervosa and that they're a consequence of being in a different starved state so that's why it's a bit different in eating behavior is that the behavior can become self-perpetuating irrespective of the emotional triggers
0: now, you've mentioned and referred to what's going on, say, on a, a macro level, a popular culture. We all know that we're living in a terribly perfectionistic age. Social media, everything is curated to be perfect. And there's an enormous amount of pressure on everyone to, you know, look and look good, present an image that is socially pleasing etc cetera, etc cetera. we all know that but to what extent i know you've done research on the impact of social media on mental health can you tell us a little bit about what your research looked at whether you think social media is having an impact on disordered eating behaviors for both boys and girls
1: Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. I mean, I wouldn't claim to be the the world expert on the relationship between social media and, and eating disorders, but we did do a study looking at whether social media, the number of hours somebody spent on social media was related to their mental health later in adolescence. And we found that on the whole, it wasn't how much time your child spends online or on their phone isn't the factor. What does mediate the relationship between time spent on social media platforms and one kind and another and later mental health are whether they have negative experiences online which we would normally call as cyberbullying or similar whether they're online instead of sleeping because we know that sleeping is really important for your mental health and whether they are online instead of doing what we would call normal social activities and normal physical activities so if it's displacing socialization in normal ways and physical activity in normal ways, then it's more likely to have an impact on your mental health in later years. But you're absolutely right. When you look at the literature specifically about eating disorders, there's quite a number of ways in which social media has been related to eating disorders. And the the sort of commonest at the the population level would be that focus on body image, appearance and, and body weight and shape because as you know, they, they, you know, people show them be- their best selves online, and that isn't always a reflection of reality. It can, for those who are highly competitive and perfectionist, and we know that perfectionism is a risk factor for eating disorders, that can be quite a negative experience. Obviously, it can provide a platform for people to comment negatively on each other and sometimes unfortunately that is around weight and shape and that is more likely to be the case for girls because girls are more likely to be judged by their weight and shape than boys are so that's one of the ways in which girls are thought to be at higher risk of eating disorders is that the weight stigma that I talked about earlier kicks in much quicker with girls than it does with boys and then of course once somebody is into disordered eating there's all sorts of ways that people perpetuate beliefs or and often false beliefs about what healthy eating and good nutrition look like at its most extreme you know that you can find extremely negative and harmful information about eating disorders online
0: to what extent when you meet patients in your clinic you know do you think oh you know you've recognizing they've been on social media sites that promote anorexia? or thing. Is, is that sort of something that comes into your radar quite a lot? Is it something you worry about?
1: It's certainly something we ask about. So in the same way that we ask about whether school is a good place for them and how their peer relationships are in school, we ask about their relationships online as well and the sorts of information that they're accessing because we're trying to get a, an idea about where their main influences and point of contact are. And if we consider that somebody, you know, if if somebody does have a particularly toxic online environment, then we would talk to them about that and talk to their parents about that if they were younger, about how they can help to provide some balance around that. Because ultimately, we're all exposed to these toxicities where they can occur, but we don't all respond to them. Um, And we don't all respond because we have other parts of our life where we know that, that what we're seeing in that world isn't, doesn't reflect what we're seeing in the real world. It's when that balance gets tipped that it's so difficult. And I think that's why lockdown was so difficult for some young people is that they had no other world to produce that balance. They had no reality against which to cross check that unreal world in which they were interacting.
0: Where we are at this point in time, do you feel like the eating disorders, on the, the ones that you've mentioned that are on the rise, potentially as a result of lockdown, are we seeing the full impact of them yet? Or do you think there's more to come? What do you think is, what what can you expect to happen over the next sort of six months, year,
1: years? It's an interesting question, not one I've really thought about. What I can say is that the, the the surge in presentation to eating disorder services happened in the autumn last year as young people went back to school. And we don't know whether that was because the anxiety of going back to school and reintroducing oneself socially was one of the precipitants for that because we know that those sorts of uh, social anxieties and interpersonal difficulties again can be a trigger for changes in eating behaviour or beliefs that if you were only if only I was thinner then this wouldn't be so difficult, or whether it was because simply that people noticed at that point something that had been going on covertly up until that point. We we honestly don't know whether that why there was a surge. So obviously we're expecting a second surge now that schools have gone back again after the second lockdown in January through to March. I haven't seen the, the figures haven't been published yet for whether that's actually been the case. But I think one of the things that we all know from our experiences that is that during those periods where we were socially isolated from our, our normal realities is that what we were all being bombarded with were were messages about our weight and about eating in various ways and some of that was positive you know families cooking together making banana bread etc but some of it was not some of it was much more focused on that you know this is a time to adopt extreme eating behaviors there were lots of television programs about how to lose weight quickly and exercise was emphasized a great deal obviously I have to say at this point, clearly, weight does matter ultimately for health. What we're talking about is when any of these behaviors have potential for harms as well as for benefit, clearly exercising, being active, hugely, hugely important for both physical and mental health. But there are some people, as I've said, who are prone to compulsivity. And if it gets lodged in their minds as a a rule that has to be obeyed in ways that it begins to take over and that balance on perspective is lost. That's really what we're talking about when we're talking about eating disorders. So what might be what might be positive for the population as a whole, there's a slight risk Of collateral damage for those who are at risk from some of those behaviours, including things like focusing on counting calories, periodic fasting behaviours. You know, for those at risk, those behaviours can be quite harmful. Plus,
0: it was quite terrifying, I think, for people to hear that COVID, you know, you might be more likely to die from COVID if you were overweight, obese. And that was, you know, it came with quite a sense, a tone of emergency, didn't it? And it was quite frightening for people to hear.
1: Absolutely. I can't think of another natural disaster that would also have had such a strong fear of obesity message generated with it. That's absolutely what that was all about. Yeah. And
0: you can understand in, in a time where everyone was potentially feeling a little bit more anxious and concerned for those with pre-existing anxiety disorders, or you can imagine that that was just, as you described, the perfect
1: storm. Yeah, absolutely. So we know that the pandemic has been difficult emotionally for all young, for a lot of young people. I have to say there are again, there's a caveat, which is that there are some young people who have actually found the l- lack of expectation to attend school and to socialise a bit of a relief. So there are proportion who for whom it's been a positive experience, and and emerging has is quite challenging. But there, we know it's been a difficult time emotionally, and if you add on top of that. A sort of global sense of emergency about being overweight it's not hard to see how weight eating and exercise could have become a focus of those emotional concerns.
0: Now another big issue is it's okay to you know spot things or if you're a teacher in school or a pastoral member of staff and you notice these things and you want to refer the young person to clinical services well
1: those are overwhelmed aren't they? Yes but i Eating disorder services for children and young people have been a a focus for a number of years now for government health policy. In 2016, the government put uh, £30 million a year into developing child and adolescent eating disorder services in the community. So over 70 teams in England were either created or where there were existing teams, they were enhanced as a result of significant investment and so the care pathways into eating disorders care have been distinct from the pathways into other types of child and adolescent care for mental health since that time and the aim was to remove all barriers to early intervention so the idea was that GPs as soon as they thought that there was a likelihood that there was a possible eating disorder would refer almost immediately to a specialist service rather than having to go through the usual sometimes waiting list that was happening in generic child and adolescent mental health services and a lot of those those services are receiving referrals direct from schools or from parents and self-referrals from young people. So I think it's important to dispel myths about all child and adolescent mental health services are full and therefore you can't access eating disorders care. It's a separate pathway. Having said that, the services were responding really well to demand, despite demand being much higher than the government had predicted. Services were responding really well until this wave of emergency referrals that we, le- that we started to receive in around September, October of last year, post the first lockdown. And now services are struggling because there was a 100% increase in urgent referrals to eating disorder services from that time. So right now, it is probably harder to access care for eating disorders that are not emergencies. But there's a lot of work going into trying to get the triaging right, making sure that those who most urgently do need care are accessing it. So if anybody is worried that somebody's eating disorder has become an emergency, absolutely don't hesitate. Emergencies are still being and urgent treatment is still being prioritised. What it's meaning is that what we would call routine care, routine access to psychological treatment is at the moment there's a slightly long waiting list than is than usual. But even so, it's a lot better than in lots of other parts of the health system and certainly in lots of other parts of the mental health services system. I think unfortunately what that can mean sometimes is that there's a feeling that developing an eating disorder may be a quicker way to access care than through other routes. So, so I guess that's just from a a reflection point of view is that there is a, there has to be a triage system at the, at the Point of entry to say, you know, is this an appropriate referral for an eating disorder system or is is the eating just one part of a bigger picture that would be better served by treatment in another sector of the mental health services? Because eating disorders treatments are, are eating disorder specific.
0: I think there's definitely a sense in the media that they've sort of promoted the idea that, you know, you have to be really seriously underweight to get any clinical attention. And that's not true, is it?
1: Absolutely not. No, eating disorders, as I've said, occur across the weight range, that there are risks associated with eating disorders that are not to do with being underweight. And that's exactly what the assessment process is about disentangling. We have a comprehensive risk assessment approach, which includes not just assessing the young person, but also listening to the concerns of parents. So it's it's absolutely not just about weight. Having said that, clearly being severely underweight presents high medical risk. So it is part of the picture. It's not the whole picture.
0: Is it appropriate for a parent to just go and talk to the GP on their own about behaviours that they're seeing within their child without bringing the child to the GP? That's often something parents are interested in.
1: Yeah, I mean, we would always recommend taking the young person with you or child with you if you can, because it's much easier for the GP then potentially to have a separate conversation with the young person, but also to see for themselves what the child's reaction is to the problem being addressed. But absolutely, if you can't get your young person to go with you, go yourself and talk about what's going on. The other place that I would suggest parents go is to look at BEAT. BEAT is the eating disorders, the UK eating disorders charity. And there's a lot of resources online for parents, including, including a tear off sheet to take to your GP so that you can direct the conversation with your GP to focus in the right areas and help your GP make the right decision about whether your child needs referral or not. So there are a lot of resources out there to support parents if they are not sure how to go forward what
0: is your general advice for schools is there anything that you do you think oh I wish schools would do a little bit more of that or do I wish they would talk about eating disorders in a different way or I wish they would use charities like beat a little bit more what is your sort of general feeling about where schools could do better
1: okay so firstly schools have a hugely important positive role we get a significant proportion of our referrals because schools have recognised that there's a problem as you'll be aware that there are now mental health workers either in or associated with most schools to try and facilitate that decision making about whether a child needs to receive care or not so schools are hugely important in recognising when a child is not themselves in all sorts of ways and to observe behaviour both eating behaviour but also interactions around peers so knowing if somebody's you know not getting on with their peer group or there's been a Changing behaviour in some way. So, schools are hugely important in terms of recognition, uh, firstly, and we know that early recognition is really important. In terms of the messaging that schools give, I think the thing that I'm particularly concerned about and I've written about in various places is making the link between strategies that are designed to address obesity and what the impact might be in relation to eating disorders. So, one example that springs to mind is that schools are mandated to weigh children and young people. And I think that hasn't always been linked to the emotional consequences on the child of being identified as being overweight or obese in some way. And sometimes the experience of being weighed has been negative as well. So that's been an area of concern that's been raised by the eating disorders field, that that process of classifying children in itself can be a negative experience. Secondly, I think, You know, years of experience in the eating disorders prevention field tells us that scaring people about eating disorders is not the way to prevent eating disorders. So educating children about eating disorders and their harms is not what the bedrock of eating disorders prevention is about. Eating disorders prevention focuses on promoting positive body image, helping people develop emotional literacy and media literacy, recognizing that the images that they're seeing are not real world. In other words, interventions that tackle the what we would call the thin ideal culture, and the weight stigma that we've talked about as being hugely important perpetuating factors. So that's what the bedrock of evidence-based eating disorders prevention looks like. There's also, I think, a role for recognising when children, what we call generally negative affect, when children are feeling bad, that that's another trigger. And the other area in which schools are mandated now to act is around social and emotional learning. But again, I'm not sure how much talk there is in the social emotional learning curriculum about the relationship between emotions and eating and perceptions of body shape and image. And so that's an area where there's more work needs to be done and more research needs to be done. And it's really important. So I do get emails sometimes from parents saying, you know, where my child's been exposed to interventions to, to teach them about obesity and to teach them about body image and, and so on in ways that they don't always perceive as beneficial. And so one of the things I would urge schools to do is to make sure that any materials they're using for those sorts of sessions have been subject to trials, to testing, to see whether they have positive effects on children's self-esteem, body image, and ultimately on their mental health, because not everything that's out there is necessarily beneficial. And there's some things, a few things that have potential for harm.
0: And also, I think, you know, the little things in schools matter. We know that girls' participation in sport tends to dip off at the onset of puberty, and sometimes girls at that point don't want to, you know, body image can be quite complicated and they don't want to do PE because they're not comfortable in their uniform, whatever it is, and those sorts of things matter too, don't they?
1: Yeah, and again here, I think that recognising Those, what I would call adolescent, normal adolescent issues to do with managing your own comfort and your own relationship with your rapidly changing body weight and shape. There's a role for schools and for parents in that, in terms of helping young people adjust to then their new weight and shape. Some of it's about reassurance, but some of it is about normalizing and and celebrating some of that change but also recognising that it's intensely private and personal and that people can get into a very avoidant position about their body weight and shape. I hope that the days where people were shamed in sports lessons and so on are long behind us.
0: Okay, well, thank you so much, Dasha, for spending time with us and sharing your fantastic expertise. And thank you so much for all the work that you do do in this area to help our children and young people. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for your time. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education, www.tooledupeducation.com. Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.